welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today we're on, what, episode 80-something. 86, I think. Yeah, I'm going to go with 86. Today we're going to talk about choosing woods for making hand planes, and we're going to spend some time talking about the tools that you might want to have near to hand when it comes to opportunistic logging. I'm going to trademark that term. You know, we have urban logging, we have reclaimed lumber, we have cup of slab, opportunistic logging. Um, that's what I'm going to go with. Although that could be misconstrued and make me sound really evil. I'm opportunistically logging the rainforest. No, this is opportunistic logging. It's that driving down the road and you go, ooh, look, somebody just took down a tree. Or look, Mother Nature just blew over a tree. I want it. And you pull over and you try to pull that log in and you're like, oh, crap. How am I going to get it in the back of my uh, Ford Escort or in the back of my smart car? Um, they don't make... Uh, um, trailers with log arches that fit smart cars, I don't think. Anyway, those are the main topics. We'll probably talk about some other stuff along the way because that's just how scattered this show generally is. So before I get too scattered, let me make sure you guys know how to get in touch with me to submit your scattered questions. Lumberupdate at gmail.com or lumberupdate.com or lumberupdate on Instagram. You can get me all those ways. Go to the website, go direct to email, whatever it takes you can submit your questions. Or if you want to be one of the cool kids, go to patreon.com slash lumberupdate and sponsor the show and submit your question while you're there. Um, I will most definitely answer it if you've submitted your question in the form of a Patreon sponsor. Yes, I am a mercenary. I, I'm happy to admit it. Anyway, let's, let's stop talking about all the business stuff. I'm terrible at business stuff. Let's talk about wood. I'm good at wood. So Industry news. This one's interesting, and I've heard this a couple of times. Um, this is sent to me from a couple of people, but uh, Derek wins for getting it to me first. And it's an article that says the world has more trees than it did 35 years ago. Now, I've heard this spoken in uh, very particular instances of something like Western Red Cedar in Canada. There are more Western Red Cedar trees now than there were before, um, you know, all of the, the horrible late our early 19th century um, and late 19th century logging fiascos. All the cool black and white pictures you see of just amazing trees being cut down. And then you think about, wow, look at, you know, the poor silvicultural planning and all that fun stuff. Yeah, there's supposedly more Western red cedar trees now than there were before we came and harvested them all, which I suppose could make a lot of sense because when you consider that initial round of harvesting was taking the old growth stuff that had been growing and, you know, trees growing and dying as older trees kind of crowded them out for centuries and millennia and eon prior to that point. Now we kind of essentially clear cut and especially a species like Western red cedar, softwoods in general, that uh, sprout up really quickly and are often broadcast seeded in order to grow in clumps. You imagine there's a lot more trees. If you were counting like trunks, you might say there's more trees. Now, are there as many big trees as there were before? Probably not, but there are more Western red cedar trees now than there were before that spate of clear cutting, logging and all that. This story, uh, this is, uh, where the heck is this? Uh, the website, oh man, the website is called goodgoodgood.co. Uh, I've never been to this website before, but I can tell you their logo and the banner is like written in like an like a faux old English font that makes it impossible to read. Don't do that, people. If you're going to make a make text, like make your text, your logo, do it in something that actually is readable. <laughs> anyway, web design tip. Um, so <laughs> one of these days I'm going to get on to this, this article, but it says worldwide tree cover, tree cover has grown by 2.24 million square kilometers, the size of Texas and Alaska combined in the last 35 years, according to a paper in the science journal Nature. So again, it's a, it's a pretty interesting article that talks about um, reasons behind this between tree planting programs. Uh, better agricultural management, in some instances, um, uh, uh, better just silvicultural plans, or I can't say better, but silvicultural plans where there were none before. Um, overall, um, they, they, this article concludes that 60% of all the change that they saw, this increase, was associated with human activity rather than natural kind of natural regrowth. Or maybe you might say human inactivity. 
But I would wager to say that it's more managing the forest than anything else. So while we may have more trees than we did 35 years ago, we can't really, you know, we could pat ourselves on the back, but we also can't say, hey, you know, deforestation is a myth. We don't have to worry about the rainforest. No, certainly we have to look at where there are more trees and where there are less trees. And there's no doubt that the greater growth of trees is not in and around the rainforest, which, you know, from a biodiversity standpoint, from a carbon sequestration standpoint, all that fun stuff is something that we need to be very, very aware about. But I want to look at this from a very positive perspective and say proper forestry management can go a really long way when it comes to help growing things back. All is not lost, folks. And with proper management, uh, we can we can right the ship. And I dare say, even in some areas of tropical rainforest, the ship has been righted or is being righted. So, um, you know, g- getting a handle on things like illegal logging is becoming is becoming more and more difficult. But um, I think the technology to spot to catch illegal logging has gotten advanced enough now that given some time for that existing tech to kind of work its magic to be kind of become part of the norm, we can help to prevent illegal logging from happening. Right now, we're getting better at catching it, but as we know, once you cut down a tree, it doesn't really help anymore. Hey, we caught you, you know, can't put that tree back in the forest. Ideally, some of the tech that's allowing the catching happening could go further upstream, and ideally, as further technical advances happen, we can look to prevent some of this. So, I take this story as if we take the illegal logging out of the equation, which I know is a real big ask, a real big theoretical if there, but if we take that out of the equation, proper management of forests is producing a net gain in trees. And I'm sure that there's some scientists out there who can poke holes in that statement. And this is coming from a guy who works in the lumber industry, so you all think I'm horribly biased. But frankly, most of the folks I know who work in the lumber industry love trees, just as much as the environmentalists. So... I'm taking this as a positive, and uh, thank you, Derek, for sending that. We uh, drove that particular article into the ground. Uh, I wanted to look at some feedback. Um, in the, the episode where, oh, shoot, now I forgot who it was who wrote in, who said that uh, you know he took down that walnut tree and it was all sap. I can't remember if I said it on the show, but he definitely told me that it was an English walnut tree. Well, you guys remember David Barman from Epilogue Lumber that I had on several shows ago. David actually chimed in on Instagram and said that the the image, it was the featured image um, of that episode also in my Instagram post. He said the feature image was actually of an English walnut and that particular species is really known for having a large amount of sapwood. So somewhere in the line, I knew that it was an English walnut. I don't think I said it on the show, but I did not know that there was such a stark difference between the amounts of sapwood between English walnut and like American black walnut. It doesn't surprise me, especially when you think about the climate and the soil chemistry differences with all the rain that they get over in England. Certainly, I would expect there to be a greater amount uh, of sapwood, at least um in its earlier growth rates. But interesting. Thank you, David. It's always fun when we've got these people who've been on the show who then chime in and, you know, they kind of lend lend some expertise because we spent, you know, an hour talking to David and and he definitely knows his stuff. So again, thanks, David. Um, I had uh, taken a question from Ash about Rubberwood a couple episodes ago, and he wrote back to say um, thank you for, for addressing my questions about Rubberwood. Um, I actually made my mom listen to it as well, which, sorry, mom. I don't know. How many of you in the audience make your mom listen to a podcast? Uh, if I made my mom listen to this podcast, she would probably disown me. If she hasn't already. I don't know. Anyway, um, he made his mom listen to the podcast, which made for a double bonus because she manages the History Museum for the Los Alamos Historical Society. And I've been trying to get her to let me source some old lumber from some of the historical properties in order to repurpose it and make some things to sell out of the museum gift shop. So this goes back to uh, another episode when I talked about getting your hands on historical properties, historical landmark lumber. Make your mom listen to this podcast and you might actually get access to that. So Ash goes on to say that he's been given access um, uh, to anything available over the course of the upcoming remodel of the late Dr. Oppenheimer's personal home. Um, and uh, really, I think you need to grab like a stud, make a bench out of it and carve into the front. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And if you don't know that quote, then you either need to watch the Manhattan Project or read the book. 
obscure quote. Anyway, moving on, now that I've shown you how, how smart I am <laughs> with the history of nuclear fission and the, uh, the Manhattan Project, um, he's been able to grab all kinds of interesting scrap from the Los Alamos properties, um, some black locust, some sycamore, and some cedar. So here's this is really cool. Again, there's there's free lumber, um, different species of lumber, but also a story behind this lumber. And uh, stay tuned because coming soon, I'm gonna have a whole episode focused on reclaimed lumber. And some of this, I think, would qualify as reclaimed lumber. But this is uh, reclaimed lumber of specific, significant um, historical value. Um, Dr. Oppenheimer's lumber, cool stuff. And then um, Michael wrote in, and um, I thought this was particularly interesting. Uh, he said, I married into a Ukrainian family 31 years ago. Um, as I was preparing to marry my Ukrainian wife, um, the Ukraine was declaring and then voting to approve its independence. Um, I was taught in no uncertain terms the grammatical and political incorrectness of the phrasing, quote, the Ukraine, what I just said. Um, that phrasing perpetuates Russian imperialism. It comes from the fact that the old Slavic root of Ukraine means borderlands. And that's why the Soviet Russian term was trans always translated here as the Ukraine, the borderlands. To them, meaning the Ukrainians, um, that kind of takes away the unique history of Ukraine and kind of denies its sovereignty. So um, interesting point. He, he wrote this as like not like kind of wagging his finger trying to, to correct me, but to kind of point out the history. And that's really cool because I don't know that I've ever really thought about it. I remember hearing the Ukraine many times. I've also remember hearing Ukraine. I honestly don't know that I paid attention to why the direct article was used in certain instances, but now I know kind of the history and I will definitely make a habit um, of trying to say Ukraine. And that goes for the rest of the people in the audience. If you hear people like me boshing and saying the Ukraine, um, you don't have to correct them and be that guy, the smartest guy in the room. But I think it's a particularly interesting history lesson that has absolutely nothing to do with the lumber industry, but uh, reminds me of when I went to visit Greece and I was told in no uncertain terms by a local that the name of the country is not Greece, it's Elas. So there we go. Now we know. Now you won't in offend any Ukrainians. In fact, you might gain the respect when you refer to their country as Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Like I said, this show kind of goes off the rails sometimes. Um, I really should do this show with with more like guests and co-hosts because they keep me on track. Anyway, let's let's get onto some questions here. <clears throat> Richard has uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. It's a can of worms question. He says, I'm looking to build a series of hand planes and I've been looking at alternate lumber types since it's so hard to find beach in sufficient rough dimensions. I'm curious about the working properties that make beach so desirable for plane bodies. It's got a decent jank of hardness, but it's similar to maple and several other hardwoods. Um, I already built a, a, a a 15 inch jack plane in cherry, which has a better uh, TR, tangential radial ratio, but it's enough softer that I think I wanna try something else going forward. So just for reference folks, um, cherry has a Jenko hardness of about 850. Beach, oh shoot, I'm forgetting. I wanted to say it was like 2300, but um, I should get my facts straight before I do that. Maybe it's more, he says it's similar to maple. Maple is 1450. Um, Maybe I'm mixing it up with birch, but I was almost positive that beach was, no, it's 1450, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of a different beach. No, all right, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So 1450, yeah, so it's it's basically identical to hard maple. Um, yeah, we've got that out of the way. Um, so he says, I, you know, I use cherry, but again, cherry, we're talking about half the hardness uh, of beach. So I was thinking of Sapili, it's Janka hardness is similar to beach. Sapili is about 14, or excuse me, 1520, 1550. Um, it has a more stable TR ratio. And while beach has a higher modulus of elasticity, I'd have to think that wouldn't be much of a factor for hand planes. Good for you, you're right. Unlike beach, Sapili has the advantage of being able to be found in 16 quarter, 16 quarter quarter sawn stock at relatively reasonable prices across most of the US, which will help a lot when I'm, um, when I'm ready to start on howls and rounds. Is there something I'm missing past the high level properties in the wood database that might make Sapili a poor choice? So this is, I really wanted to highlight this question because this 
shows some of you, at least one of you is listening to everything I, I preach on here about using the technical properties to apply to whatever it is you want to do. What are you trying to make? And when he said, you know, Maj's elasticity and then went on to say, I don't think it matters with hand planes, he gets a gold star, two gold stars, because it's absolutely right. The bending strength and the stiffness makes no difference. I mean, even if you're building a, a joiner plane, say you're building like a Cooper's plane, for God's sake, like a 50, 60 inch long Cooper's plane, which how many people are doing that? Typical joiner's plane, 24 inches long. Over that length, the bending strength and the stiffness is just not going to be tested. Moreover, think about how you use a plane. You know, are, are we going to be using a 24 inch long joiner plane on the corner of a board so that just, just the corner is pressing into the sole and we're causing deflection? Even then, um, the corner of a board over a 24 inch board, the amount of deflection you get would be so little, the stiffness doesn't matter. The bending strength doesn't matter because ultimately you're using a joiner plane because you want that long sole. You want as much of the sole in contact with the wood as possible, meaning the bending strength is irrelevant because the bending strength is supported by the board in which you're planing, which is supported by the workbench you're planing on, supported by the floor, all that stuff. So uh, modulus of, elas of elasticity and modulus of rupture are irrelevant. So you don't even have to look at those numbers. Janka hardness, I would say, is a big deal um, because obviously if the plane is really, really soft, you could dent it um, you know, just by dropping it on the bench or you could dent it by, say you're putting a chamfer, say you're using like Western Red Cedar, like 300 Janka hardness, and you're leaning that joiner plane on its side to put a chamfer on a hard maple board. That hard maple board is going to wear a groove in your plane in seconds. If not, cut a groove, it's going to deform it in a real in a, in a real problem. So you can imagine doing this time and time again, or just planing time and time again with a softer wood like that, it's going to cause problems. He mentions hollows and rounds as well. Imagine those tiny little aerises on the side of the hollow plane in a soft wood. Those would deform instantly. Not to mention if you're, you built a rabbit, um, rabbit plane, and you need that sharp inside corner to stay sharp all the time, which is why people box their, their rabbit planes and put persimmon or boxwood or something in that inside corner. That hardness is a really big deal. I would say Janka hardness would be the most important. Next would be its stability. And it's great that Richard doesn't talk about tangential or radial movement. He talks about TR ratio, the tangential radial ratio. That's a better number of how stable the wood is. So if you had a TR ratio of one, it's perfectly isometric. It's going to expand and contract evenly in both the X and Y coordinates, if it were two dimensions. Just forget about the Z coordinate. Um, so TR, the, the, the closer to one the TR is, the better. Now, you know, even the most unstable of woods doesn't really climb much out of the one point something, 1 1.9. I've certainly seen two. I think I've seen 2.5 and now I don't remember where. That's an interesting question. We often talk about what's the most stable wood. What's the least stable wood out there? I don't know the answer to that. If anybody does, write in and let me know. Um, I'm gonna immediately start researching that after I'm done recording here, just because of some sort of sick fascination and desire to have those kind of answers at, at cocktail parties. Because I go to a lot of wood-related cocktail parties, as I'm sure you all do. Anyway, um, that TR ratio is gonna be much more important than say it's got 6% tangential movement or 3% radial movement. Um, the other thing I will say, and I've gone several rounds with plane makers and I've gotten one plane maker that says one thing and one plane maker that says the totally opposite thing is, you know, we talk about in what direction do we orient that radial plane for the best stability. And some plane makers will say they want it running, you know, across the body of the plane and others saying they want it vertically on the body of the plane. And you can actually make a case for both. The problem is, is you've got that, you've always going to have that more stable direction. So where do you want your stability? And that's how you would orient the plane. So I think you could actually say both of those plane makers are right. And dependent upon the type of plane and where you want the most stability, you might orient that radial plane slightly differently. Um, if you've got a really narrow plane, but a really long sole, you might want a, a, a greater radial dimension along its length. You know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about this. And there's a lot of ways to very quickly get confused as I'm using terms like horizontal and vertical. And it's really hard to kind of picture. But 
I urge people to not necessarily just ascribe to the the dogma that's out there and think about how you're actually going to use that plane and how you orient the um, the the planes, the geometric planes. But the important thing here is not how little or how much it moves in one plane, but how much it moves in uh, relation to the other plane, the tangential plane or the radial plane, whichever one we're not talking about here. And that's where the TR ratio becomes particularly important. So when we look at, um, I'm just gonna go with European Beach. Um, it has a TR ratio of 2.0. That's pretty damn high. So you immediately have to go, well, what the hell? Like, why was European Beach, and by the way, American Beach uh, is 2.2. It's even less stable. Um, so we're talking about Fagus grandifolia for American Beach and Fagus sylvatica. Again, same, same genus, very little difference between the two species. Although, as we just learned, um, American Beach is um, slightly less stable. It's also a little bit softer than European Beach. But for most vintage planes, London planes, things like that, we're talking European Beach. It's got a really high TR ratio, 2.0. So that tangential plane is moving twice as much as the radial plane. So you can imagine that kind of disparity would cause real problems. So why the hell was it used for so many wooden planes? And I've had this question brought up a couple of times and I've talked to longtime plane makers, I've talked to historians, I've talked to like, you know, folks at Winter uh, about this. And in the end, it comes down to availability. European beach was freaking everywhere. And it was easy to get in those larger blanks because of the way the tree, the tree grew. There became a market demand for that particular tree and those particular size blanks for making planes. So when the Sawyers went out into the woods to cut down the tree, what did they do? They cut it into plane size billets because they had customers for it. What don't we have a lot of today? Wooden plane makers. So guess what the Sawyers are not doing? They're not sawing it into 16 quarter billets to make um, planes. They're not. Um, and if you have 16 quarter stock and you've got a nice long clear board, you're not cross cutting it into tiny little 24 and 16 inch long billets for making hand planes. You're using that long clear stock for millwork, for molding, linear molding type stuff. That's where the market demand is now. So, and, and beach has become um, a great flooring species. It's become uh, a siding species and it gets used a lot um, in those type of millwork operations, not in plane making. But then again, no species today is getting used in plane making, so there is no one sawing it accordingly. Um, a lot of the professional plane makers I know um, get, you know, you ask them, where do you get your stock? They formed a relationship with a sawyer, basically, and they have created a demand for that sawyer to saw specifically for them. That's where that material is coming from. There's not some super secret Sawyer somewhere out there sawing wooden plane blanks just out of the kindness of his heart. So that is why beach was so common because it was, it was local and it was hard. It was hard. And when you think of the British Isles, for that matter, think of most of continental Europe and you think about what's most important when I'm making this wooden plane, hardness. So think about the species that were readily available. Well, oak, certainly. Um, European oak, English oak has a good amount of hardness, but because it's a ring porous wood and it's a particularly large poured wood, it's got that very open grain surface, which isn't going to wear as well. Um, all of those ordered rings of pores in a ring porous wood means you've got all of your dead air, your low density stuff, all grouped together in one spot which can cause uneven wearing over time. Also, as you're like actually cutting the plane billet and you're cutting the sole, if you've got multiple growth rings represented on that sole, you're gonna have little pockets of air which are going to wear unevenly over time. It's the same reason that you have to pour fill oak in order to get a, you know, a French polished super smooth mirror finish because there's too many wide open pockets in there. It's a heck of a lot easier to get a mirror smooth glass Miller uh, French polish on hard maple or beach because the pores are super, super tiny. So the hard, hard woods were all ring porous woods. The really hard woods that were not ring porous woods in Europe and Great Britain, it was beach, folks. And that is why beach got used so much. So today, if you wanna make a wooden hand plane, 
We have the entire globe available to us. It is a global economy. We've uncovered all these woods that Christopher Columbus went and found. And, and now we're able to import wood from six continents. I don't think there's any wood in Antarctica. I'm almost positive. No, there's no trees in Antarctica, you idiot. Six continents. We're bringing wood in from all over the place. So we can get, if, if, if ultimately the, the technical property we need to be concerned about is hardness, then focus on hardness. Well, let me just say hardness and porosity. You don't want a big wide open pore. So for instance, Wengi is quite hard. I want to say it's around 1200 or 1500, but it's got huge pores. Now it's diffuse pores, which I think makes it even worse because it's got big, huge pores scattered all over the place and no particular orientation. If it were ring porous, I might be able to rive it and get a consistent growth ring on the sole. But no, we, we, don't, we don't want that. So you stay away from Wingate. We want something hard. Well, you can look at beach and say, okay, 1450. So let's find something in the 1450 range. I will, however, tell you that I have um, a half set of hollows and rounds made by Matt Vickford in Cherry that I've now been using for more than 10 years. Perfectly fine. They wear perfectly fine. And they're quite small. And all of my hollows with those fine little aerises on flanking the hollow have worn just fine. No problems whatsoever. So I might even venture to say that 850 is plenty hard enough for a wooden hand plane. You just have to think about how you're using it. If you are consistently making things out of really, really hard woods, then you might find that your planes won't wear as well. I happen to love walnut. I happen to love cherry and soft maple. So most of the woods I work are at the same hardness or softer than the cherry that my plane is made out of. So maybe that's why my cherry um, planes have worn so well. But I also have a hard maple plane. Um, I've got several antique beach planes as well. And believe it or not, I have a joiner plane made by Scott Meek made out of white oak. And everything I just said about ring porous woods, white oak is most definitely a ring porous wood, but it's got porous kind of stuff uh, filled with tylos. So maybe that has something to do with it. But at the same time, I also have to think about like, how often do I use that white oak plane? And how long have I had that white oak plane? I think I've had it eight years, nine years. I've used it a fair bit, but a fair bit for me is nothing compared to a professional furniture maker, let alone like a millwork house back in the day that was still using hand planes. The, the wear and tear that the average hobbyist woodworker is gonna put on something is you know night and day difference than a professional woodworker. But a professional woodworker, you know, putting eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day in their shop every single day is probably still not gonna put enough wear and tear into a wooden hand plane. So, you know, Yes, tradition is a great thing. Yes, beach planes are really, really cool. And you kind of look to our forefathers and say, well, if it, if it worked for them, why should I do anything different? Well, the reason is it's hard to find beach, uh, as Richard said, in these large billets. So when it comes to finding another species, focus on hardness. You can look at the TR ratio, but you know, if you want to focus on hardness and TR ratio, you can do a hell of a lot better than beach. Um, cherry, for example, is better from a TR perspective. Um, maple, I think hard maple is even better. I want to say it's TR of like 1.7. Uh, I could be wrong there. But again, I would focus on hardness more than anything else. I know for a fact that Phil Edwards of Philly Plains in Great Britain uses mostly Goncala Alves for all his planes. Way harder than beach. Um, I don't know its TR ratio at the top of my head, but it doesn't really matter. But it's also a tropical species. It's quite oily. So um, I, have, I have multiple, what, I have three different planes made by Phil. Um, they're self-lubricating because it's such an oily wood. I just made a pair of hollows and rounds out of teak, uh, about a Janka hardness of around 1500. Um, well, it depends on where you get it from. Sometimes it can be about 1200, but still hard and super oily and waxy. It's completely self-lubricating. It's like a, it's an amazing thing, amazing wood to, to, to play with because it's like, I'm constantly wiping the sole with paraffin wax and it runs perfectly smoothly. So with the entire globe of wood species open to us, I ask, why would you use beach? You know, if you're using it just out of some sort of, some sort of historical reproductive accuracy, then more power to you. But if you're looking for the technical properties that will perform best in your particular situation, your particular plane, there are so many other species of wood that you can look at. So embrace the global economy, Richard, and use whatever the heck you want to use. So if you want to use sapili, 
go for it. I can tell you, it works great. I know Scott Meek has built several uh, of his laminated Krenov style planes out of Sapili. I myself have built a smoothing plane out of Sapili. It's about five or six years old, works just fine, nice and stable. Um, and you can get big old thick chunks of it. Um, so yeah, uh, sky's the limit, Richard. Go to town. Uh, if there are plane makers out there who now have stopped listening because I'm fighting tradition, then I'm sorry. No, I'm not. What am I talking about? Anyway, uh, my main ish topic this week is, is about the tools on hand for harvesting lumber. And it actually comes from Sean, who uh, reached out to me somewhere on social media. I think it was actually on Facebook Messenger. Yeah, people use that. Um, he says, I don't have a gas-powered chainsaw, nor do I want one. So what's the best hand tool to keep in my truck when I see available urban timber with a free sign on it um, that's too big for me to load in my truck by myself? For context, I'm not looking to, um, looking to mill long boards, but rather turning species, turning pieces from 10-inch bowls to tool handles, as well as the occasional non-turning piece that requires milling of shorter boards for projects, you know, boards less than two feet long. I have an ax, a hatchet, a garbage bow saw from Harbor Freight, uh, a modern bandsaw with hardened teeth, and a few traditional hand saws. Um, would a traditional turning saw be a good tool to make or purchase for this use? Thanks for the great info. So I'm going to get um, pedantic at this point and go into semantics. Pedantic and semantic, it rhymes. Um, a turning saw is a type of frame saw. Um, in the spectrum of frame saws, it's on the, the lower end or the smaller end. The smallest frame saw being the fret saw, then the coping saw, then the turning saw, just based on the size of the frame. A fret saw is a frame saw, a turning saw is a frame saw, a bow saw is a frame saw, but I would say a bow saw is the next size up from turning saw. A frame saw or sash saw is the next size up from the bow saw. Um, one might say my 48 inch resawing frame saw would be a frame saw in its generic form. This is what I've always been taught when I was working um, at uh, uh, an interpretive museum, a history museum. Uh, we had probably 50 different frame saws hanging on the wall and they were organized from largest to smallest. We always referred to the largest ones as frame saws down to sash saws or window saws to bow saws, turning saws, coping saws, and then fret saws. So, sorry, I got semantic on you. So no, a traditional turning saw would be a horrible tool for, for dealing with a log because the turning saw is gonna have probably a 12 inch long blade probably a quarter to an eighth inch wide blade cut with a very fine pitch for cutting delicate turning curves and things like that. Um, a buck saw, which is a type of frame saw, which may be the what he's referring to when he says a garbage bow saw from Harbor Freight. Uh, bow saw or buck saw is often what you'll see like in those Eric Sloan books, you know, the great drawings of a guy sawing a log or bucking a log to length. That's what it's called when you cross cut a log in a shorter segments, you buck it to length using a buck saw. So um, if you were to go old school and have a hand saw in the trunk of your car, I would suggest a buck saw is a good option. Um, they're going to vary in size a little bit. And certainly the pitch of the tooth is going to vary a little. Some, even the tooth pattern, some of them use a traditional, like a sawtooth pattern that we, we know of today. We see in most of our hand saws. Some of them use, a um, even use a perforated lance pattern. Like you see in larger crosscut saws. Um, but when you get a log that's more than about 12 to 18 inches in diameter, a buck saw is really slow work. Now, if it's freshly sharpened, um, it will it will do a good job. And if the tree was freshly felled, so it's still quite wet, it, it will work, but it's still gonna be a slow operation. And you're gonna be best to have um, support so that the log doesn't shift around on you um, and bind because the kerf of a buck saw is going to be narrow enough that it will very easily pinch as the log shifts on the ground or if it's unevenly supported. So that's the other thing um, we'll get to on our toolbox in addition to saws is some way to support that log. Honestly, I find the more modern method, and I, I'm with you by the way, Sean, I don't particularly want 
a gas chainsaw. Um, and if I had a gas powered chainsaw, I wouldn't keep it in the trunk of my car with a tank of gasoline. No, 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 folks, bad. Now he does say he has a truck, so it might be better to keep it in you know, the open truck bed, but still. Um, don't scoff at electric chainsaws. Um, cordless tools have come leaps and bounds. I mean, they make cordless table saws and cordless chop saws that I've personally used at our mill that work fantastic. You know, great power in the things. I have a uh, cordless chainsaw. It's a cheapo Ryobi I bought at Home Depot, but I bucked um, a uh, uh, um, Norwegian fir log from a tree I had taken down to my yard. That sucker is 28 to 30 some inches in diameter. Um, and I bucked it with that electric chainsaw. Now I didn't have to you know, use it all day long. I mean, I sapped the battery in about 20 minutes, but that's all I needed to, to cut it into length that was usable. Um, the, the, uh, I can't remember the capacity of that saw. It, it, I was pushing it. I was like at the capacity, but I know that there are some electric chainsaws out there, um, that have a longer, um, have a longer, run a longer chain. Um, God, I'm forgetting the name bar. Gosh, I was forgetting the name of the part (laughs) that have a longer bar. Um, and there are some electric chainsaws I've seen that have, um, you can change out the bar. Um, most chainsaws allow for that, but a lot of them don't really recommend going much longer. So you'd be surprised what you can do with an electric chainsaw. Um, and for somebody like yourself that is doing a lot of turning and you just need smaller hunks of wood, having an electric chainsaw in your trunk would be a great way to do that. Um, especially if you're harvesting opportunistic lumber under the dark of night. Not that I recommend doing that, if you find the log laying in someone's yard, go and ask them before you start cutting into pieces. But, you know, I'm, I'm joking, but I've seen many an instance where there's a log laying on public land and it was probably cut down by the utility company or somebody in the government um, and they left it on the side of the road and someone's going to come along later and pick it up. Should I go to my town office and say, there's a log over here, I want to get it? I probably should. Would that lead to me being able to get that log? Probably not. Uh, Would anybody care if I went out on the side of the road and quickly pulled up my electric chainsaw and cut, you know, an 18 inch long section off of it and put it in the trunk of my car? Probably not. Um, So there will be instances where you run across a log on public land and there's no one to ask um, and you want to kind of quickly cut it and get it out of there. <clears throat> before the cop car comes along and says, what are you doing? Again, I do not endorse clandestine log harvesting, but you get the point. Um, going out there with a, with a buck saw could take you quite a bit longer. And if it's pouring down rain, and it's cold and it's freezing outside, the chainsaw is going to go a lot longer um, uh, as a useful tool. And you don't have to keep it filled with gas. You don't have to have a gas tank in the, in the, in the trunk and all that fun stuff. But let's talk about the other stuff. I mean, if you just don't want to use a chainsaw, I would say a buck saw is a good idea. You can buy one-man cross-cut saws. There are companies out there that still make them today. You can also buy them vintage. Um, You need to be comfortable sharpening a saw. Um, I wouldn't recommend. I have a 36-inch saw, uh, and that sucker is really nice. It cuts really well, but it's quite an expensive saw. It's also 36 inches. Doesn't exactly take up little space in the trunk of your car, but you could actually find, um, you can find like typical 28 or 26 or 28 inch long hand saws that have, uh, big old crosscut teeth. We'll even have perforated lance tooth patterns on them. Those are another option. I do think the buck saw is probably the most efficient option as it can be broken down and stored relatively easily. But let's talk about the other things. Say you, you've seen that log in someone's yard that the tree removal company already bucked to length and they've got rounds that are 12 inches, 18 inches long, but those suckers are still super heavy and you're not gonna lift it into the back of your car uh, by yourself. I think, and the, the tools that I use the most when it comes to harvesting logs like this is a sledge and a wedge. Well, wedges, I should say. Um, two to three steel wedges and a sledgehammer will very quickly take that 18 inch round and split it into two 
semicircular halves, which would be a lot easier to lift. And frankly, if you're going to be turning it, if you're going to turn a bowl out of it, you're going to probably end up doing that anyway. You know, if you're making a live edge bowl, you would probably cut it in half. If you weren't making a live edge bowl, you're going to cut it in half anyway to maximize the yield of that round. Uh, unless you're making an ingrain bowl, which I know certainly some people do that. I have not had a lot of success trying that. I'm not a good enough turner, I don't think, to pull that off. But being able to split it can take you know a couple of whacks with a sledge. Um, your your little hatchet that you already have will be beneficial for kind of just hacking out any kind of connective tissue left. But you can very quickly split a big old 36, 48 inch diameter round into two halves and then into four quarters and make it much much easier to move. Um, I recently had a friend who lost a tree um, and asked me if I wanted. Um, any of it or all of it, they were going to have a, a tree company come out and, and haul it away. So they said, get here before they do and take whatever you want. I ended up taking um, several different sections. This was a, a red oak tree. So I took several sections specifically meant to be uh, bent into like Windsor chair back. So I, I cut, I used my buck saw to cut 60 inch long links out of the tree. And then I split that into like eights. Um, because I just needed it for, for bow arms. I could have probably split it even more, but I was just trying to get it out of there. Well, splitting that six foot long, it was probably about a 36 or 40 inch diameter oak tree. Um, splitting that into a half, that sucker was still heavy. Splitting into a quarter, it was still heavy. But splitting it down to eights made it, you know, heavy lumber that I could very easily load. More importantly, I could stack it. I don't have a pickup truck. I was able to stack it in my hatchback relatively easily and get it out of there. I then also bucked out several um, 24 and 36 inch long links and then split them up, up to make spindles. Um, so knowing what I was looking for, that I was gonna make chair parts out of it, right there on site using three different steel wedges and a sledgehammer, I was able to do it. Now I used my buck saw as well to cut it to those lengths because obviously the shorter the length of round, the easier and faster it is going to be able to split and certainly the lighter it's going to be. But wedge and sledge, an amazing tool, an amazing tool. And you can make um, a wooden wedge, also known as a glut, um, that can be really beneficial. So you have a couple of steel wedges and then a larger kind of a, a larger faced glut that you've made out of something that's not gonna split apart on you, like dogwood or whatever, can be a super lightweight and very effective tool. Once you've gotten the, the split started, taking that big old uh, glut and driving it in will really split a log apart very quickly. And that's something you don't have to buy, you can make. Um, gloves, maybe maybe I'm a, wink, I'm a weakling. Um, let's face it, I do spend a lot of time working in front of a computer. So I've got, I've got lily white soft hands, I suppose. But you know, I'm not worried about splinters. For me personally, I get poison ivy if I come within a mile of a plant. So every time I'm moving a log around, I just, I never know. I feel like the older I've gotten, the more prone I am to like um, getting a rash or sneezing or becoming congested because of something I picked up off a tree. I have a guy that I work with who used to run uh, a landscape company and tree removal company. And he's like, just when you think you're okay, you come to this tree you've never had exposure to before and you end up breaking out in hives. Um, having gloves can really, really help with that, especially if there's like ivy all over it. Um, you never know, those gloves are a really good idea. Um, a cant hook or some kind of long pole that can help you um, get some leverage if you need to possibly roll the log. Um, as we saw in one of our recent episodes about the, uh, the, the harvesting the oak tree, a car jack can be really beneficial. If you can dig a hole and get the jack underneath there, you can lift, either break a frozen log free from the ground or lift it enough that you can roll it over on the other side and take a look at it. And you're, you're probably, hopefully, already gonna have a jack in your car to help with. So a shovel would be the other tool to add to that. You could have, you know, like a camp shovel or something like that if space is an issue so that you can dig a hole enough to get the jack underneath it to, to be able to lift the tree up. Um, if you happen to have a full-on can hook, I do, because uh, I've now had multiple people come to me with the same situation saying, I've got this log, do you want part of it? The can hook goes a long way. I got mine at Tractor Supply um, for probably less than $40. Um, nice, really useful tool. And it makes me feel like a real lumberjack when I walk out with my 36-inch buck saw and a can hook um, and flannel, of course. Except that I can't grow a beard very well at all, so I can't pull that off, sorry. Anyway, um, I honestly think, I mean, that's, that's what 
I have. I've got an electric chainsaw. I've got I've got a full-size buck saw, but I don't really keep that in the trunk of my car. I have a frame buck saw that I do have in the trunk of my car. Um, I've always got a pair of, of gloves in there for just moving lumber in general. I also have a regular cross-cut handsaw because I oftentimes have to break actual board lumber down to fit it into the hatchback of my car. Um, there are three wedges floating around in the back of my car at all times. Um, drives my wife crazy because they clink a lot of times together as you go over a bump or whatever. And there's a small like 18 inch kind of handheld sledgehammer that is there. Those wedges and sledge pretty much take me all the way. Um, in most instances, that opportunistic harv- harvesting is an instance where the log has already been bucked to length and the wedge will allow me to lift that giant 36 inch round not only to fit in the hatchback of my car, but just be able to lift it into the back of my car. Um, so yeah, uh, you can go and buy you know wedges at just about any hardware store. A lot of the modern wedges, the problem they have though is they have a much, much steeper bevel. You can see where the bevel was ground right on the end and it's a really steep bevel. Uh, if you do a little bit of digging in antique shops or on eBay, you can find wedges that come to a more acute angle. In fact, you won't, you won't see like a steep kind of secondary bevel down at the point. The whole face will be one consistent bevel and the whole thing is a much lower, lower angle. Those will split logs a lot easier. The steep bevels on a modern wedge, or for that matter, those specialty splitting wedges that have like those little bumps that grow out the side, the little growths we'll call them, that will split much faster. That's for splitting firewood when you've already got it into shorter lengths. If you're trying to have a more controlled split so you can have more usable lumber, those splitting wedges kind of, they're a little too aggressive. So um, if you buy a modern steel wedge at like Home Depot or Ace Hardware, you might wanna spend some time on a grinder and kind of grind back the, the angle a little bit so it's a little bit more acute than what's on those modern wedges. I wanna say the, the angle is probably the inclusive angle is probably like 45 degrees on a lot of those modern wedges. Um, my older wedges, I got mine on eBay years ago and I bought them in like a, a, a set of like eight for like $20 or something like that. But the inclusive angle on mine is probably 30 or lower degrees. Um, that's gonna make things a heck of a lot easier. It's not to say that you can't split a log with a modern wedge with a steeper bevel. It's just going to, you might need a longer sledgehammer in order to do it and you might, you're definitely gonna deform a lot more of the log down by the wedge where you're splitting it. But really, it's just enough to get the crack started. And then the wedges along the lo- along the length of the log end up being, um, it's not so much about the acuteness of the angle. Um, if I can plug my own business, uh, in the hand tool school, I actually have a whole lesson on this, what I'm talking about, splitting logs and harvesting logs like this when you find them alongside the road. Um, Become an apprentice today and you get access to that lesson in thousands of more hours. I think that's the first time in 86 episodes I've done a, a commercial for the Hand Tool School. You would think as a businessman that I would talk about the Hand Tool School more often, but I don't. Handtoolschool.net in commercial. So anyway, um, mainly that's what I would say, Sean, to for your, your toolkit. Some gloves, two to three wedges, a sledgehammer, something to give you a little bit of leverage like a can hook or some sort of long pole or something like that, uh, a shovel, um, and if necessary, uh, a buck saw or an electric chainsaw will go a really, really long way for what you're looking for. But I know there's a lot of you listening right now who know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to opportunistic harvesting here. And what do you have in your toolkit? What have you had success with? What was that like, man, I wish I had bought this years ago type tool? And what would you suggest to somebody like Sean and like me, who frankly don't want to have a bunch of gas-powered chainsaws floating around. Uh, I know, I gotta turn in my my Matt Cremona woodworker card because I don't wanna have a big giant chainsaw because I'm compensating for being small elsewhere. Yes, I just said it, I said it. And Matt does listen to the show from time to time, so yeah, you know it, buddy. Anyway, now that the show has gone even more off the rails, let's move on. But yes, I'd I love for people to write in um, or, or email in or, or voicemail in or whatever and let me know what you have in your opportunistic logging toolkit. Uh, okay. Um, I did have one other kind of log question that I wanted to hitch on, uh, touch on because it does touch back on a, on a previous episode. Kevin wrote in and said, um, I was listening to the episode where you talked about the shelf life of logs. My father-in-law has a sawmill, but he's basically exclusively sawing trees that have come down in storms. 
Does anything about your answer change for trees that have come down by themselves as opposed to logs that have been felled for lumber purposes? Um, not really. So again, my original whole idea about the shelf life was is you actually probably have quite a bit more time than you think you do. Um, if a tree fell down by itself, you do have to ask, how did it come down? If it came down in a storm, there's a greater chance that the tree is really no different than one that was felled for lumber. Although if there was some rotting, maybe that's what caused the tree to be blown down. Maybe it had become weakened enough that it was able to blow over in a storm. Um, I know a lot of what I see is actually the whole tree went over and like uprooted the bulb on the bottom. And a lot of times that has to do with just a lot of water. So the soil became really soft and the tree just blew over. So the trunk itself didn't break. If you see something like that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that log. And it would be really the same as anything that was specifically felled for lumber purposes. So no, the same, same things would apply there. If however, you find a tree that, um, has a severely rotted center, you know, you look at that, that log, wherever it's broken or it's been sawn and it's hollow in the middle, or you see really soft, punky, rotten wood in the middle. That's something you, you may have to worry about. Um, as far as the shelf life though, if you seal the ends, um, you're still going to have some shelf life to work with. Just getting the water out of there is going to help a fair bit. But the biggest issue you may have to run into there is bugs. Uh, if it's already starting to rot, it's nice and sweet and gooey inside, like the inside of a Twinkie. So you're going to have all manner of bugs and Woody Harrelson trying to get to the gooey inner of that Twinkie. Um, so that's an instance where you might want to, if you definitely want to saw it, you probably want to saw it sooner rather than later, and you definitely want to get it into a kiln. But you also may make that one saw cut and realize, no, this is not going to work. So, you know, if the tree looks perfectly fine, I don't think it's going to matter much, um, much different from my original uh, uh, answer in that episode about the shelf life of logs. If it is clearly rotten, I think your shelf life is substantially shorter, um, but you never know. I mean, there's so many things from the species of the wood to what's eating it, to how long it's been laying on the ground, uh, to how much bark is there, what kind of... Um, sapwood was on the tree, where the soil chemistry was, all those things could affect that. But I think just as a rule of thumb, if it fell over because it's rotten, your shelf life is dramatically reduced and it may not be usable at all. So thanks, Kevin. That was a, a, a good question to kind of shed just a little bit more light on that particular um, episode, because I don't want people thinking this rotten log, I'll just put anchor seal on it and I'll be good to go for seven more years. You probably end up with a lot more bugs and, uh, a Twinkie Center. So that being said, folks, I think that brings me to the end of my show for the week. This one was really scattered. Um, I probably should make sure that I, I don't have low blood sugar and have already eaten before I film this show because I don't think my thoughts are making a lot of sense because all I can think about is I need to go eat something. So with that being said, folks, Thank you, everyone who wrote in with questions, some good questions this week. I'd love to hear from you on what your opportunistic um, logging toolkit looks like, what recommendations you may have for somebody wanting to do some own, some of their own opportunistic logging. And in the meantime, until you have your opportunistic logging kit, go buy some lumber.